Welcome, everyone, to installment number 47 of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we broadcast the news, commentary, and views important to the unmanned systems industry. This week's episode is Drone Privacy. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and as always, we will offer a warm welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Hello, Patrick. How are you, sir? Happy to be here. (laughs) Doing good, um, you know. Again, um, another busy week. Uh, we got all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, we have a couple of guests today, and this is going to be what I will call a cut-up adaptation of the usual podcast format, because format, uh, uh, the guests are on time constraints. And so what we will do is I think we're going to march right on in to uh, the show, and uh and then we'll take care of the guest, and then at the end we'll we'll do our regular uh, news and commentary on the news and about uh, I don't know five other things that are going on. So, uh, without further ado, we'll bring on our our uh, first guest, uh, Trevor Tim. Uh, Trevor works the Electronic Freedom Foundation, or EFF. Hello, Trevor. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. Uh, I first met Trevor at the UC Berkeley Law School. Um, we There was a drone uh, ethics and policy talk, and he was part of that. And that's, uh, for anybody who wants historical data, that's podcast number 43, Drone Law Takeaway. I also tweeted the link to the video from the event. Did you uh, did you get a chance to watch that, Trevor? Uh, I mean, I think I watched part of it as it went, um, when it first came out a couple weeks ago, yeah. It was a little. I was a little. It was too bad that the audio from the audience, their questions, um, it was a little inaudible, and that's too bad because I think that that was really where the uh, insight was for people to understand uh, where the privacy issues are and some of the thinking that uh, some of the people had there. But anyway. Uh, marching along, um, you know, maybe Trevor, you could give us the uh, what I like to call the perfunctory guest bio on yourself, where you've been, and how you got mixed up in all of this drone business. Think that's possible? Sure. Yeah. So, for about uh, I would say a year and a half now, Electronic Frontier Foundation has been working on the domestic drone issue. I think uh, probably when we first started, uh, barely anybody knew that. Uh, domestic drones were even a thing. Uh, I mean, I'm sure listeners of the show did, but uh, a lot of the general public didn't, I think. And, um, you know, part of our goal was to kind of educate people that this um, domestic drones were going to become a a huge issue down the road. And uh, the first thing we wanted to do was kind of tackle some of the secrecy surrounding the FAA and how they were handing out drone authorizations because... Uh, as I'm sure you know, the FAA has been really secretive about, you know, who they're handing licenses to, what type, what, uh, what these organizations are doing with drones, who's flying them, and the like. Uh, even though with manned aircraft, they're obviously very transparent about that kind of information. Uh, so we ended up filing a Freedom of Information Act request about a year and a half ago. Uh, the FAA didn't respond to it, so we ended up suing them in federal court. Uh, you know, basically demanding that they release this information. So uh, when they did back in April of last year, it was basically the first time they had released information on drone authorizations. And so slowly over the last, since last April, they've been releasing this information uh, once every couple months. But again, the information is usually outdated uh, or incomplete. 
And so we'd like them to set up a system where they're releasing this information regularly and being more transparent. Uh, another thing we've been doing at ESF with drones is once we found out the FAA wasn't really being forthcoming about a lot of this information, we started sending public records requests to police departments to find out if they had plans to get drones, and if so, um, what were they going to do with them, and if they already had them, what kind they were, and uh, what they had already done with them. So we've sent out about 400 public records requests so far based on this information, and we keep getting uh, information back pretty much every week. Uh, you can go to muckrock.com, our partner in that, uh, to get more information about our what we call the 2012 drone census. Hmm. So, I mean, a lot of a lot of our work has been focused on transparency, but I think going forward, um, the second half of our work is definitely focused on privacy because uh, we want to make sure that when police get their hands on domestic drones, when they have you know so many good uses, that the technology that's attached to them doesn't get abused and used for surveillance purposes or for invading people's privacy and, you know, I'm sure we can talk about it more, but a lot of states right now are coming out with legislation that kind of deals with this problem and it's become a quite a hot issue. Right. Well, we're going to touch on that. So our other guest, uh, we're going to touch on what's going on down in Texas because, and then also our podcast co-host is from Texas, but you covered a lot of real estate and let's, you know, let's roll back just a little bit. Um, you know, the sure. information, and and like I was, uh, like I had said, I think at the uh, UC Berkeley uh, Law School thing, you know, I had FOIAed that same information uh, that you guys FOIAed back in, uh, I believe it was 2008, September of either 2008 or nine. I want to say eight though, and I got the total stonewall from the FAA. The other thing that I was asking for was the experimental certificates. And I don't know if you guys foiled that. I know you were more successful because you guys sued, but that might be another thing that you want to do because there were – the FAA is very cagey. And, I mean, you probably uh, started deducing this, but they are not forthcoming with information. No, uh, certainly not. No, and uh, there seems to be very little oversight and less in the way of accountability which to me is is kind of surprising and that may feed into something else later on in the in the show but I will say that you know you have to understand what the COA thing and the experimental thing and I'm going to go out on a limb here I'm I have some experience here um you know let's say there's there's certain COAs that are out there now that people are using for what I would call commercial purposes uh same with the experimental certificates they don't really uh they don't really want to share that so there is special dispensation for special people. And if special people have, you know, let's say moneyed interests and have lobbyists and whatever else, they seem to uh, be able to get special treatment. And and one of those, I don't know if you guys found that COA, but there was one up there in um, off the, uh, in, and I think it was in the Arctic, and they were supposedly uh, counting walruses up there. But really, what was going on is they were they were doing some work for Shell, and I like to call that one the Shell game. But uh, I don't know. Did you guys find that one up there? I think it was oh, Forever. Uh, no, I don't know if I knew about that. Yeah, there was that one. There was another one uh, DHS had uh, for the Skybus system, which I foiled that. Named it Time. Everything else I foiled that several years ago. Still waiting. Nothing. 
I, I mean, I've, I've got a ton of FOIAs into the FAA. They just don't. They just don't do it. Even through my congressperson's office. Yeah, exactly. You know? They weren't giving they weren't giving us any help until we actually sued them, and still they've been slowly releasing more information at a really a stale pace. And we've actually sued them a second time now, uh, but we're still waiting for the results of, of that lawsuit. But yeah, they have not really been forthcoming, and I can see how that happened to you when you when you poured the stuff back in '08. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of uh, even even the treatment that my uh, congressperson has gotten. I would I would uh, say is um, if I was a congressperson, I'd be uh, I'd be a little um, I don't know hot under the collar, I guess. But uh, you know, that's another thing. Maybe we could talk about in the future too. Is uh, I'd say a little bit more detailed information in your requests because I do believe that uh, there are some operations that are going on out there. That if some small guy was doing it, uh, he would be busted for um, commercial activity, and and Skybus is one of the examples. You know, they got an experimental certificate, went out there, and uh, they were out flying around for a month, and uh, they basically, you know, they didn't get paid for the flying, but they got paid for everything else. And it'd be it'd be interesting to understand how uh, that happened. And and from my point of view, not that I just want to, uh, you know, be a troublemaker. My 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 thing is is uh, you know whatever uh, people are doing so they can operate in the NAS and make money, we should be able to uh, level the playing field, and everybody else should be able to do that too. Does that make sense to everyone else? Yeah, I mean that makes sense. That's it. Go ahead. And Gene, what do you think? Trust me, we've been talking about the level playing field for five years, and all we want to do is, uh, I, I don't think that anybody uh, denies that there shouldn't be some regulation and oversight of drone usage, but uh, everybody should be able to follow the same rules and, and you know, take advantage of the technology and, and utilize it in a commercial fashion. We've always said that, so there's nothing new there. Uh, just, you know, give us the rules and we'll all play by them. Well, and if you're going to make special rules for some people, you got to open up those special rules for everybody else. And that's kind of what I've said all along every, in my interactions. It's like, look, you know, I don't care, you know, what company X is doing, you know, if you think whatever they're doing is okay. But you should make that information public so company Y can emulate that same model and make some money. That's all. You know, that's all I'm saying. And... um you know, very secretive about that, and I and probably because it's outside of the current stated policy. And the other thing that cracks me up while we're on this, Trevor, and I don't know if you guys have uh, have caught on to this one yet, but the FAA is one of the only federal uh, administrations that I know I know of that uh, lacks a um, uh, an administrative uh, procedures manual. There's none. They just kind of make it up on the fly. I think it's kind of kind of weird, but that's me. Anyway, um, let me ask you about uh, Trevor. Your interpretations of the UC Berkeley Law School event. What what did you think of that? Well, I mean, I thought it was a it was a good event. Um, I think a lot of people hadn't heard about this issue. Everywhere I speak, I feel like a lot of people haven't heard about the issue or don't know exactly what's going on. So I think that was great. I mean, I think you were a little outnumbered in the crowd. Um, but uh, overall, I thought it was a good event. We covered a lot of ground, I think. Yeah, we did. 
I, yeah, I, I, I thought the same thing. We covered a lot of ground. Um, you know, I didn't really I, – I, I did feel like there was a little bit of overt hostility towards the AUVSI, uh, where people were saying, you know, like you're you're part of the drone dealer lobby and whatever else, and, you know, whatever. I do think that there was a little bit of relief uh, from folks when I said that uh, no topics were off the table. I, I think that people uh, felt a little bit better about the conversation that I was going to be open and honest about it. And I didn't really feel like um, I, I towards the end, I, I felt that people had a better understanding of the technology and that there are people out there talking about sane uses. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I always try to make that point, too. It's not that I'm necessarily anti-drone or anti-technology, and there are a lot of great uses that we can uh, figure out uh, that, uh, you know, even law enforcement can use these for, but it's important to, at the same time, be able to protect people's privacy in a in a binding way that they kind of make sure that everybody's fears are, are taken care of before these get in the air. Right. Well, I think that's an education thing. I mean, let's, you know, I, I don't really want to, I, I don't really want to dwell or dwell on what happened in Boston, the tragedy or whatever else, but I, I do want to just compartmentalize uh, kind of, so let's say the surveillance part of that. And uh, I think it's at the forefront of everybody's, um, I'd say consciousness right now, but uh, even watching the, the footage uh, that was out there <clears throat> And all of the different camera feeds, I mean, there were multiples, uh, even in the end when they uh, they used the IR sensor to uh, find suspect number two underneath the cover of the boat there. Um, you know, to, to be honest, uh, even that IR footage that they used on the boat, that's nothing compared to uh, the, the good stuff that's on the manned assets now. Trevor, maybe you could uh, give me your impressions of all of the video surveillance and uh, whatever else that intelligence that was gathered in, in let's say, the Boston case. What, what do you guys think about that? Well, I mean, I don't think anybody would argue that it's a good thing that we were able to use technology to track down these suspects. They're obviously a huge public safety threat. And, you know, the technology um, kind of gives everybody an idea about what's to come when it comes to drones. And uh, I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, we would want this technology to be able to track down <clears throat> real criminals like the Boston suspects, but the problem is that uh, with drones, the barrier to entry as far as um, the price or, or, or how much police pay to use these this technology goes way down, you know, by 50 or 100 times, and the police could end up using it for all sorts of purposes that aren't related to emergencies or um, even criminal investigations. They could be just using it for generalized surveillance. And, you know, I think um, while you may have thought that the sensors, um, the infrared cameras that picked them up in the boat, um, you know, those are, even the ones that they used were outdated. I think a lot of people were really impressed with that, and that can give you kind of an idea about uh, what's to come and whether we want drones to be able to fly around to use these infrared cameras on, um, you know, basically any, anybody they see fit. And not necessarily saying that these this technology should be outlawed, but there should be some sort of oversight in place so that when police want to use this, 
um, in non-emergency situations that, you know, we're making sure that people's privacy is protected. Right. But, and, and maybe I didn't make myself clear enough on this, but I mean, you know, from what I saw, um, and and I'm not making any judgments on the case or even trying to make any judgments on, you know, uh, let's say overreaching and in uh, intelligence gathering or whatever else. But, I mean, is uh, EFF, I mean, like I said, you had several different feeds from cameras in different places. So, I mean, is that... For me, I see kind of the drone thing as a touchstone for people to say, "Oh, well, you know, uh, you know, this this surveillance is going to become more prevalent." But I mean, uh, these guys were on several different cameras. They ran them through the software. Uh, you had people making, uh, let's say, comments that these people were not uh, born here because uh, their pictures had already been run through every little or every other database and algorithms and facial recognition and everything else and they they couldn't find them but they had all of these different angles and all of these different camera feeds do you think that the general public and this is just a question but do you think that the general public understands the level of surveillance they're under now um i don't think they're usually ever aware of the amount of surveillance they're under. I mean, this situation kind of gave people a good idea. I mean, I think it's important to remember that a lot of the cameras, uh, a lot of the pictures that we saw were from private surveillance cameras. They weren't from government surveillance cameras, you know, cameras set up to protect people's property, uh, you know, outside the Mm -hmm. businesses. And then once the police released the original photos, uh, people started sending in cell phone pictures that they had taken themselves. Uh, that weren't part of any government system either. Uh, you know, when we're talking about the facial recognition, uh, they actually had the, the two pictures of these guys in their database, and the facial recognition just didn't work. Um, you know, it didn't match up the pictures with the pictures on the surveillance with the pictures they had in their database. Uh, so I think it's, you know, also a lesson in, in how this te- type of technology doesn't necessarily work every time. We have to keep that in mind. You know, mistakes can happen the other way, too, where somebody gets falsely identified, and we have to mm-hmm. watch out for that. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a a good lesson in, you know, not blindly trusting this technology all the time. And, you know, despite the fact that a lot of technology was used and a lot of, a lot of surveillance cameras ended up helping in the situation, it's important to remember that, you know, this was basically solved by old-fashioned police work with, you know, hundreds of cops working 24-7 to find these guys. Uh, and, you know, eyewitness accounts where, you know, the guy was found in the boat um, by somebody who was just walking out in his backyard originally. Um, so, you know, I think it's important, number one, not to uh, read too much into the technology that was used. Uh, and number two, be aware that sometimes, um, you know, in, in situations not like the, the Boston case, it, it could potentially be abused. Gene, mm-hmm. comments? I, you know, one of the things that I thought was real important about that was the, the amount of private surveillance that uh, was utilized. And we've always said that even drones are not a panacea. I mean, they're, they're not the be-all, end-all of everything. They're just another tool in the toolkit. Um, you know, you mentioned that the uh, facial recognition software didn't work initially, but, um, you know, when, when you did put it out in the, the, the public sector and people started identifying those faces, then it started coming. It was a collaborative effort, uh, you know, between <laughs> police agencies and, and uh, the uh, some of the other 
agencies that were involved and the public. And uh, you know, there there was a buy-in there. There was there was a common goal there that everyone went for, and uh, it was supported. And I think uh, people probably learned quite a bit about what their exposure is to surveillance. And uh, in this particular case, it was very beneficial. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that was kind of my point. The different camera angles, the different pictures, uh, all of the different footage. The other thing, too, is, is I think... You know, what occurred to me is, is you know, the kind of the, the 1984, um, that's the image that people have in their mind that Big Brother is watching you. I think it's turned into uh, we're supplying, as with social media and whatever else, we're supplying Big Brother with the information. Uh, these cameras may have been private. Uh, so I guess, you know, that's another, I mean, I'm not a privacy expert, but even that, I guess, you know, I've started noticing, too, uh, even since this came up as a privacy thing, that every place I go to, um, when I go to a restaurant, if I go to have birthday cake, I notice there's cameras. I mean, there's cameras everywhere. And so, but if that's on private property, should we just expect that, e EFF, Trevor? Well, uh, yeah, a couple things about that. You know, I think there is an added layer of oversight when you think about it, when it's private cameras, because, um, you know, the, the private business has to cooperate with police to begin with. So, you know, if police come in and say, oh, I want to look at your surveillance tapes, and, and they don't give a reason why, uh, the the private business doesn't have to agree. You know, they'll probably only look at this footage if they know there was a crime committed. And two, you know, private businesses don't have an incentive to hold on to this videotape forever, basically. You know, they have limited storage space and probably want to delete it, whereas the government has basically unlimited storage space and could use this um, for who knows how long and then feed it into other databases and let other government organizations use it. And I think that's where the real privacy concerns come in. Um, and, you know, I don't think anybody's arguing that private businesses shouldn't be able to use security cameras to guard their property. And I think in this situation, we can see that that system works uh, a lot better at protecting people's privacy than, than a system of government cameras. Yeah, okay, but I mean, so let, let, let's just change what the camera is mounted to. Instead of being mounted to a wall, we'll send it up on, uh, you know, in a drone that's 100 feet up. And it's private. Well, I mean, that's kind of a hypothetical situation. Why would you fly a drone 100 feet up when you're a, a restaurant or a retail store when you can just attach a camera to the wall? I mean, that probably is uh, unduly complicated. situational awareness. Yeah, I mean, what I like about a mall, I mean, a mall, like, I mean, I've thought about this for years. Uh, the mall here, you know, it seems like at Christmas time, uh, the crime goes up. Um, you know, I used to date someone that worked at the mall, and they would leave late, and uh, people were being assaulted and robbed and all the rest of that, and it's private property. What would preclude the, let's say, uh, you know, mall owner X that has this big parking lot and this huge uh, swath of territory that they have security on the ground and cameras, why couldn't I have uh, four or five drones flying around with cameras surveilling my private property? I mean, what it, what's, what is the difference there? Is there well, a difference? Well, I mean, that's a good, that's a good question. There, there may not be a difference in people's minds. I guess it depends on if you're following people around for long periods of time. Are you going off the property? Are you... 
Um, what are you doing with the footage when you're done with it? Are you deleting it? I mean, there's all sorts of factors that we have to look at. Um, and, you know, right now at EFF, we're not necessarily kind of focused on this private surveillance. We're focused more on the government side of things because that's where, obviously, the drone authorizations are being handed out only to public agencies. Uh, and so, you know, I think down the road in 2015, when they start handing out licenses to commercial agencies, uh, there will be more complex problems that we have to deal with when it comes to privacy. Uh, but, you know, there are there is privacy tort law that protects people uh, mm -hmm. from, you know, somebody's drone, like, going and snooping in your window. Um, but with uh, police, I think it's a little bit more difficult because, you know, they need constraints by the law. They can do things that private citizens can't. And so that's why we've kind of been focused on the government side of things. And, you know, hopefully on the private side, <clears throat> things will work themselves out uh, and it won't be a major problem. But, you know, I think it, it, it definitely will get more complicated as we go down the road. Right. Well, and, Bert, and, uh, if I could Bert mention something on that as well, uh, you brought up a really good point about you know it's it's as if it's we're entering into this 1984 type of society where we we worry a lot about what the government is is capable of doing with UAS, um, but I think it's also important to remember that uh, this technology, particularly SUAS, is enabling uh, a lot of new civilian options with respect to observation, and that observation can go both ways. Civilians can now, as we saw in Boston, participate uh, in, in a limited capacity in, in observation, but with SUAS, you know, they can be looking back and seeing what the government is doing and documenting those types of things. So, you know, the technology is now going both ways. UAS is becoming increasingly available to the common man. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an. I think that's a good point that this <clears throat> drones used correctly can be used for oversight. I mean, there's two drone journalism programs right now being. I think it's the University of Missouri and the University of Nebraska, uh, where they're training journalists to use drones um, for muckraking purposes and to keep an eye on uh, potentially either government agencies or you know corporations that may be polluting or, or all sorts of, of reasons. So <clears throat> you know, like I said, I, I think. There, there is definitely a lot of potential for drones, uh, and especially when we're thinking about transparency and how the government's operating, uh, there can mm -hmm. be even drones that watch the drones. So, um, you know, it's, that sounds like it's a national painting. <laughs> well, you know, I, and and uh, you know, this is the cut-up version, so I need to jump back a little bit. The other guy that jumped in is uh, as our other guest, uh, Joseph Shello. Uh, I, I I think your pronunciation is uh, last Cello. name. Cello. Yeah, Cello. Okay. And we were going to bring him on, uh, but things got kind of cut up on that deal. The other thing is, Trevor, Trevor I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, um, but I did come up with that hypothetical at the mall. I am, a, I mean, there are private security uh, firms that are going to that want this. I mean, I've had private security firms and people that do security for, uh, let's say, Hollywood stars have wanted to use this forever. You know, so. I do think that that's going to uh, happen. The other thing that I would suggest, too, is, um, you know, I mean, uh, even with the police, I suggest if you're going to use this in a law enforcement capacity and this, uh, what you're going to do is uh, surveillance and it constitutes a search, we have the Fourth Amendment and you need a, um, a search warrant, you know, just like in, in any other law enforcement capacity. Like Gene was saying, another tool in the toolbox, 
I don't see this as any different than having a camera in a private security vehicle on the wall, uh, on a pole, um, wherever. Uh, you know, this is just one more tool. And the other thing is with that is, you know, you're talking about storage. Now, if I'm the I'm the guy at the mall, and we're a very litigious society. Uh, I'm going to keep the tapes of Christmas. 2009, 2010, 2013, if there have been incidents on my property, I'm keeping that as historical data to try and indemnify myself from future litigation, which may be somebody in 2016 says, oh, you know, I was over here at Christmas, I got mugged, they broke my jaw, they stole my car, whatever, yada, 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 on and on, and then mall owner is negligent in watching out for people's security. Well, you know, then the mall owner could say, hey, you know, I got tapes from 10 years that show that we do everything, uh, uh, you know, due diligence to uh, make sure our customers are safe. So, and I'm sure some of that video already exists. So those those things, I think we have to take that in perspective. It's just another, it's just another platform. These aren't new technologies uh, that are exclusive to drones, but that would be my point of view. I think what we'll do is I want to I want to bring uh, Joseph on here, and the reason that we have Joseph on here today, and, and Trevor, I know you have to go soon, but you know you can be part of this conversation too. <laughs> yeah, is, I'm gonna have, uh, I'm gonna have to run. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but actually I have to run right now. I just wanted to say it was it was great to be on, and you know hopefully we can do this again soon. Uh, yeah, and uh, are you going to the uh, Berkeley Drone Town Hall meeting? Are you going to be part of that? I think I might. Yes. Okay, well then I'll see well, you on the well, first. Oh yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be a shindig. Um, we'll have some more drone, dronerific, good time there on the first of May. All right. Talk All right. To you then. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thank you for being on. All right. Um, so I think that was informative. Uh, I, I hope everybody got something out of that. But uh, what we're going to do, we're going to move on. And uh, Joseph, uh, we wanted to have you on as kind of your. I know you're down there in Texas. Uh, we're, yes. We kind of wanted a man on the street view of the HB nine twelve. But maybe you could uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself um, before we get into that. Yeah, certainly. And good morning. Well, a little bit about me. I'm a, currently a federal law enforcement agent uh, down here in Texas, uh, as well as a commercial helicopter and airplane pilot, uh, as well as a certified flight instructor. So I've had some dealings with the FAA. And, you know, I've been involved in aviation for the better part of the last you know 15 years. Uh, but in, in that time, I've also kind of kept close tabs on current events and you know technology. My involvement uh, sort of stemmed out of that interest, um, and particularly, you know, in SUAS, it's miniaturization, you know, as of late, just the, you know, the, the, the vast potential uses in the commercial sector are what interests me. Uh, even, you know, with my background, having been in the military and, you know, and, and federal service, I'm more interested in what this is capable of doing to to help people and, and to, as a business. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think in particular, there was one video I saw one time on a website that some students from Stanford had put together like a multi-rotor uh, flying through an auditorium, which really just sort of captured my imagination and it sort of, you know, blossomed from there. Right, right. Um, well, you know, you have this aviation background and I'm sure being around aviation, you've probably commercial aviation, you've, you've, have you dabbled in uh, any aerial photography? 
Yeah, indeed. I used to work uh, quite a bit. Actually, I worked down in uh, in Florida, in the Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, uh, for a uh, charter and uh, commercial photography company. And uh, we would just literally go all up and down the coast, uh, the east coast of Florida, uh, you know, doing every every sort of uh, real estate, you know, boats, offshore, yacht magazines, and all that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I have a sort of an interesting perspective on that, and that's kind of what got me into some of this stuff. I, I feel that there's an enormous uh, potential to to sort of have a paradigm shift in the aerial photography world uh, where where camera operators now have a f- you know, basically a, a camera that's, it's like their dream. It's a camera that can move to any 3D point in space. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. If you should choose to do so, you can utilize a fixed-wing platform, SUAS platform, to do all sorts of uh, ortho mapping and uh, top-down mapping. And I just see, it, you know, you could go on and on. We could talk for hours about the uh, the near-limitless possibilities and, and uses of uh, SUAS. But, yeah, I, I have done quite a bit uh on, on the commercial side and full-scale aircraft as well. Well, and that's that's kind of one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on. So, okay, you have that perspective. Uh, you've done that before, and I'm sure there's uh, processes for getting shots, um, you know, being a pilot and getting the guy in a position, uh, the photographer where he wants to be, uh, and even in your regular job. It's probably kind of the same thing. So, Having that man perspective, that's one perspective I don't really have. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a weird thing, but uh, the unmanned, being from the unmanned side of things, you know, there's a lot of things that pilots talk about and uh, process and whatever else, and even the con ops. Um, thinking of it from being a man pilot, a lot of that stuff I don't even really possess because I don't. That's not really one of my things. Like I don't. A lot of guys. Oh, you know, I miss the feedback when the when the uh, wheel hits the paint. You know, blah blah blah. I'm like, you know, yeah. that's just one sense I've never had. So I I didn't know it was missing. Um, anyway, that's why we wanted to have you on. So, um, you know, we we talked a little bit offline. You sent me the link to the pop's eye thing, which I had contributed to, and the old Cracker Barrel was on there, which that plane uh, I, I I referenced a lot. That's that is the aircraft that I used to use. When I was doing oh, okay. this as a commercial business, and I was doing uh, the condo thing and and um, agriculture and several other uh, you know applications, and that was the plane that I was using. I used it more in in uh, let's say populated areas, um, which some people may say, well, that's kind of irresponsible. But the thing weighed less than two pounds, all up foam, wood, frangible, slow. Uh, I could catch it. You know, things like that. So that was kind of the niche sure. that I was in, and that's what I used. So, you know, down there in Texas, you got this uh, HB912. Our co-host is also from Texas. And uh, I, indeed, uh, the great state of Texas. So, you know, what I, I wanted to get your view, Joseph, on what you thought and in, in the restrictions of HB912. And maybe you could uh, share those with us. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think that uh, this is something that needs to get uh, more exposure, and hopefully, it will do so through, you know, through your efforts uh, in this this podcast and and so on. But um, I mean, I don't. I I think people look at UAS as a nationwide issue, but I think what it's really going to come down to is micromanagement in the states. I think you have you have UAS uh, regulations and laws being passed. 
um, in virtually, what, like 90% of the states right now. And, uh, you know, with Texas being this, you know, the largest state in the contiguous U.S., this is enormously important for potential operators and owners of, of SUAS. Uh, and I feel even the big boys as well. Um, so I think that it's really important that we get out there and sort of educate people as to the proper responsible uses of this technology and, and sort of get away from, you know, the, the sort of Time magazine you know, predator with with Hellfire missiles uh, on short final over people's houses. I mean, that's just ridiculous. That that really is. There, it seems to be a concerted effort to to vilify this this technology, and not enough uh, effort out there to show people how many lives this can save, how many uh, dangerous positions you can remove hu- humans from, and use this platform instead. So. Anyway, with, with HB nine twelve, it's a it's a bill uh, that's making its way through the through uh, the uh, Texas State House of Representatives at the moment. It's been proposed by uh, by Dallas State Representative Lance Good, and uh, what it does is make illegal uh, any sort of possession or distribution of certain types of uh, UAS based aerial photography. So, in in this particular case, one could find oneself going down to the corner hobby store and picking up any sort of, you know, model of any kind, they put a camera on it that meets the criteria in this bill and uh, find themselves a criminal if uh, if they are, you know, characterized as such by someone that's observing them. And you, you and I know that wherever you go, this this type of technology, these, these little vehicles, they draw crowds and people come and they're, they're interested. They want to see what you're doing. But they're also, you know, like we talked about with the, the vilification of U.S., they're also very skeptical and uninformed. And I think they're likely to possibly accuse you of surveilling them. And that's what uh, is part of what this bill is doing. It's if one is accused of surveilling, quote unquote, someone using aerial footage you're a criminal. You've got a class B or C misdemeanor. The bill will award five or ten thousand dollars in damages, as well as awarding, you know, court costs to the plaintiff. Um, so it's it it could be quite a, a a troublesome deal for even if you are not out there with the intent to actually watch somebody with your UAS. Right. So you could find yourself easily on the on the back end, on the back side of the power curve, from the legal standpoint. Uh, with all kinds of lawsuits and stuff in a, in a situation where you may have had all the, the necessary safety precautions, liability insurance, and all that kind of stuff as, as a you know prospective business owner, these kind of things that I think about. I go out there and conduct a mission. Some bystanders or perhaps some people on adjacent property think that I was spying on them. So what this bill does is enable them um, to to basically sue me, to call police, and that, and that kind of thing. So it right. just really complicates the issue tremendously. Um, well, I, and think, I think that – go ahead. Well, I mean, I just uh, – you know, like the the example I gave at the mall or – you know, I mean, I could be there with my my uh, Canon 5D and, and be taking pictures of people and get people – I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, you could be getting people in uh, your – in, let's say, your field of view – who you don't know, who are other people. Yes, some people have a, they think they have a right to privacy, but I, I think that the Boston thing shows. I mean, I was, um, 
again, to use that as an example, there's just there's there's cameras everywhere. I mean, what is what is what is the privacy? And we did touch on the 1984 thing, but I mean, people are tweeting and they're on Facebook and they're it's like they're giving their privacy away. Um, again, it's not a dodge, but it just seems bizarre. I mean, all these uh, all these other uses and, and all the other cameras and sensors and everything that's all over the place, and all of a sudden, people want some sort of special rules for uh, for drones. Well, it's true. It is it is special, and I should mention, to be fair, HP nine twelve does not make illegal all types of photography. There are exemptions or. Um, non-applications of the rule for certain entities, like if you're a university or law enforcement or within 25 miles of the border and that type of thing, the, the bill doesn't apply to your, your photography there. But if you're photographing real property or a person on that property and they and they uh, feel that, and, and here's where the bill gets really hazy, it, it doesn't really specifically define what is surveillance. but So it yeah. puts the onus on you, the the SUAS operator, to prove that you weren't. So you have to basically, you know, the cops have to be called. You have to go through this ridiculous process of breaking down your system and showing them the footage and then deleting it and all this kind of stuff. It's really just, it's kind of it's kind of silly. But the the thing that that really bothers me the most, particularly as a you know a former commercial full scale pilot, um, is that the bill makes no mention of what uh, of full-scale aircraft. In other words, you can be no, conducting the exact same mission, the exact right. same mission, collecting the exact same images, video or, or what have you, and it's perfectly legal. So hmm. it's almost as if the author of, authors of the bill are riding this sort of wave of uh, uh, misunderstanding on UAS technology, um, particularly back here in the States. What, what was that, Gene? Or taking advantage of it. I, I, Joe, I, I agree with you 100%. This, the, the subjectivity of the content there is going to open up so many doors for frivolous lawsuits, and I'm sure that most legislature, le- legislators are going to have to see this, simply because without that specificity, uh, you're going to be guilty until proven innocent, and anybody is going to be able to accuse you at any time because, as Patrick mentioned before, we are a litigious country, and we, we've become more so as of late. So, you know, right now the uh, it, it went through the uh, uh, the Criminal Justice Committee. Uh, it's still there. The bill has seven more stages to go through before it can be considered a law. And my prediction is is that because of that, and we have signing die, signing die is coming up on the 27th. That's the last day of the legislature for two years, and they are they have such a backlog that this thing has got to be fleshed out. I mean, any lawyer worth his salt will look at that and go, "Oh my God, you know this is going to open up a can of worms. Let's shelve this one until we can start filling in some of these blanks." And uh, right. I've got a suspension well, the other thing with that is, is I'm not really too surprised. I mean, we broke that story on SUS News about the, them dumping the, uh, the, the meat packing plant, dumping the blood into the river. 
Um, you know, some some people got a that was a slap on the wrist uh, situation, but it it doesn't really surprise me that uh, this is happening. And isn't there some pre, uh, something in the law that that would point to a reaction to that news story? Well, I, I mean, I don't want to draw any conclusions, but mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. there, I mean, if you're sort of reading the writing on the wall and you, you read. You know your full story, which was excellent. By the way, I really enjoyed reading. It was very eye-opening, um, and it says there's language in there that per- specifically protects uh, you or protects a company or a person against uh, having that footage subpoenaed uh, if it's if it's you know captured incidentally. So in the exact case of that guy, you know, just flying over. A public waterway or whatever it was, he incidentally captured, you know, a, a, a breach in the regulation. This would protect, you know, that that company or or whoever um, from from having any of that footage subpoenaed. So it it seems awfully, you know, strange. But uh, you know, why do they they put that in there? It makes you wonder. I don't I don't know. I don't understand that part of it too too well. But. Uh, yeah, it seems clinky dinky do, but I've been uh, money and influence usually um, influence the law. However, we will have to carry that debate on at another time because we are over, like I knew we would be, as we always are. And uh, we didn't even get to – there was about 10 or 15 minutes of good stuff about uh, test sites, and I talked to the, the head of the UASIO and uh, Berkeley and – a possible book deal and a whole bunch of other stuff, but you know what? We're going to have to wait till next week. Anyway, I want to thank uh, Joseph for coming on, and I want to thank Trevor for coming on, and Gene for you being here, and um, let's say uh, we'll see everyone uh, next week. Oh, the other big news, and this is even going longer, is the one-year anniversary show coming up May 8th. We're going to do an hour of uh, a remnant. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to flashback over the whole year. Have some of the guests come back on. Tell us what they're doing. Yada yada yada. Don't miss. It'll be great. Till next week, everyone. Uh, talk to you later. See ya. Bye. Thank you.